Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Bradley. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, one of the issues that been, I've spoken to people about before on this podcast series, but it, it, it continues to be important because we have different groups in Australia and globally that persist in propagating uh, what we normally call conspiracy theories and untruths, um, things that might be partially true in some ways, and then they're spun out of control. Now, how the hell do we actually deal with that? How do we modify people's thinking and modify people's behaviour? Well, someone who's done a lot of work in this space over a great many years is Mia Bloom. She's a US-based academic. She's done, she's written a range of books on terrorism and extremism, and one of the more recent ones is one she did with Sofia Moskalenko, the, the Bloom and Moskalenko book called Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon. So she's had to dabble with some nasty stuff and read some nasty stuff and put some stuff together to try and explain what these phenomena are. She joins me now uh, to talk about how we grapple with this as, you know, a global phenomenon, but also as individual societies trying to understand all of this. Mia, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm supposed to say good day, right? <laughs> Look, it, it, one of the things I've, that's troubled me in my reading and, and watching and, and sort of study has been the notion of... Um, what we would loosely call, if I may, uh, the, you know, the bad idea, and how we deal with people who pick up and run with or adopt bad ideas and and try and pull them away from the cliff, uh, from sort of engaging in violence. You've done a lot of work on that. What are your preliminary observations on where we are today with trying to grapple with the ideas people have uh, and then how we deal with that? I think one of the fundamental mistakes that people make in this space is that they conflate sort of radical ideas with radical action. And I know that you've spoken with Sofia Moskalenko, whose work was really seminal uh, with Clark McCauley, disaggregating those two things. When we look at, you know, and we see a lot of, especially the think tank sphere, using as a proxy measure for radicalization, people who are consuming radical content or posting radical content. But the fact remains is that we know that less than half of 1% of these people are ever going to act on it. And so I think part of the problem is it gins up concern that we think that there is millions of people who are radicalized, but we're really in the CVE space, encountering violent extremism or PVE, preventing violent extremism. We're really just kind of interested in those who act. And the number of people who ever act on their radical belief systems is extremely small, infinitesimally small. According to Mark Sageman, who's well known for his work on Al-Qaeda, he says it's a half of 1%. And when we're looking at some of these other ideologies, like this belief in weaponized conspiracy theories like QAnon, you're dealing with an even smaller percentage. And so, you know, if we're trying to combat ideas, we set the bar quite high. And, and if our goal is to change how people genuinely think and feel about 
whether it's a Salafism or far right extremism or even potentially far left extremism. But if if we're looking at behavior, we can always intervene and and create these off ramps for people to act on their belief systems in ways that are pro-social and not anti-social, which is, again, one of the things that I've always said that, you know, um, we look at these, uh, a lot of the people who are former, they're celebrity ex-terrorists, they're either ex-jihadis or ex-far-right or ex-something. And, and I find them still to be quite radical. They're just not radical about the same thing anymore. Uh, so I don't think that they're less radical but I think that they are engaged in different kinds of activities. So, so it's important to make that distinction. Um, in America, because of certain freedoms enshrined in the American Constitution, you can think anything you want. But in places like Australia, UK, and Canada, um, there, there are things that you cannot say. There, there is not an unfettered freedom of speech the way it is in the U.S., and so, you know, someone who's disseminating hate speech um, is breaking the law in some countries, not, not in the U.S. And then there are some very small exceptions. But, you know, we really are interested in those people that are translating these views to bad acts, whether these acts are violent acts or supporting others who are perpetrating violence. It's interesting that you... To the raised the, the Moskalenko-Macaulay pyramids. Um, but I've spoken to people about them in the past. And one of those, one of the challenges is to try and get people who see anything they disagree with uh, as being abhorrent and needing to be stamped out. It doesn't matter what it is. So the, 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 is there a need more broadly um, before we get into some of the things you found with QAnon uh, that are in their own way disturbing, is there a need more broadly for us to um, enable or encourage people to think more critically or educate people in critical thinking? Um, what leads, I've come to the conclusion that we don't, necessarily in this country particularly teach people philosophy or teach people comparative um, comparative sort of belief systems enough to be able to evaluate things well I think it's important for example um, so with with some of the beliefs in the conspiracy theories while it doesn't necessarily lead to uh, violent action, it still has very negative effects on people's uh, mental health and their physical health. And so it's a different perspective that we've had with uh, uh, either social media literacy or like you mentioned, Tom, critical thinking, that we need to inoculate people from these bad ideas because while it may not lead to someone, you know, trying to blow something up, it certainly can lead to very bad effects of them refusing to take the vaccine or them refusing to wear a mask or them refusing to um, participate in behaviors that protect others. So, and then at the sort of a second level effect, 
Um, it undermines our trust and belief in our leadership, in democracies and voting. And so it has a very deleterious effect on a society, which is not the same thing as having someone become a suicide bomber and try to blow up the target. But there's still very deleterious effects. So that's why, you know, we make the distinction that with CVE or PVE, the goal was to change behavior. But with the disinformation and the misinformation, we really are trying to teach people skills and inoculate them from the unbelievable amounts of bad information that they're being inundated with uh, on a daily basis. One of the things that um, I've found particularly useful over the past few years is from time to time revisiting the work done by RAND Corporation on, on truth decay. And in there, they, they talk a lot about the growing distrust over a period of time in, in the political institutions and media and in other places that have been the traditional pillars of, of truth and, and trust over the years. Um, if we go back a little uh, with... Uh, considering contemporary issues in the US right now, we go back a little prior to the 2020 US election, we saw a lot of um, media uh, and then online commentators talking about the potential for the stealing of an election. Mm. Um, you've, you've been closer to it than I have, and you've, you've no doubt observed it as part of the QAnon process on the how did that play out in your view? Well, I mean, we even have to go back to the earlier, the 2016 election, where you have the role of American adversaries, um, primarily Russia, but also China, Iran, North Korea, that were disseminating misinformation on platforms like Facebook. And so we know, for example, that... Um, that the Russians were creating Facebook pages that um, were intended to gin up conflict within a community that they would create one Facebook page pro and, the, and sort of the mirror image Facebook page anti in order to have people out in the streets fighting because this, this partisanship, this bifurcation of our society works to their interest. And so there's, there's a direct line from you know the Cambridge Analytica and the the Russian research agency the uh, uh, the I guess I guess they use the uh, same acronym IRA but the uh, Internet Research Agency to 2020 and what became very clear was this um, priming the pump psychologically that post 2018 it became very clear to Republicans that they may not be able to win, that they had taken some fairly unpopular positions and that they were losing a number of their core voting base. And with the 2018, uh, the, the midterms of 2018, in which Republicans lost the House and they lost a number of seats, I think that's when they started this um, stratagem to prime the pump that any loss would be a stolen election so that the only election result that Donald Trump said he would accept is if he won, which means that 
we had this absurd scenario in which on the one hand, and in, in, I'm living in Georgia, that in North Georgia, you had someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene who won in 2020 and then still challenged the fact that the election was stolen and, and sort of didn't confront the inconsistency that she won in an election that she was challenging because she won, but the president didn't. In other words, people locally voted for her. And, and this we saw this play out time and time again in a number of places in which Republicans had either maintained their seats or won seats. They were still challenging the legitimacy of an election in which they themselves had won. And so one of the things, one of the hallmarks of conspiracy theories is that they are not consistent. So, for example, you have, on the one hand, an argument that COVID-19 is a hoax. And then in the next breath, well, COVID-19 was a bioweapon released by the Chinese and um, financially benefiting Anthony Fauci and, and, and Bill Gates. And it's like, well, well it can't be both. Or... Uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive, or that John F. Kennedy killed, Jr. was killed deliberately by Hillary Clinton because she was worried about him being a challenger in a Senate race. Can't be both. He can't be both alive and dead. And so this is one of the hallmarks of these conspiracy theories is that they are wildly inconsistent and that people are not confronting the fact that you can't have both of these things be true simultaneously. Um. It does pose a challenge to logic, doesn't it? I mean, it beggars belief. And, and part of it is, I have a strong suspicion, so I'm excluding someone like Lauren Bulbert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar, who are kind of idiots. I mean, they're just, they're not bright. So it is possible that they don't realize the inconsistency. But I do think that a number of Republicans um, who were previously maybe 20 years ago captured by the Tea Party are now in incapable and unable to challenge what they know to be untrue. And so we saw the flip-flopping after January 6th, a number of Republicans from um, Mitch McConnell on down, uh, Kevin McCarthy in, in, in the House and Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who reversed themselves. And and they know full well. I mean, I don't I don't think Ted Cruz is an idiot. I think he's actually probably a very instrumental and clever person, but I don't think he's dumb. So he certainly knows that none of the stuff that he's saying is true. So I, I think that we need to disaggregate also within people who are spreading disinformation, the people who believe in it. And so again. Yeah. They're either they've been duped or they're they're um, useful idiots, as, as Putin would refer to them, versus people who are just, you know, um, reiterating the lies because it, they find it useful and they're ultimately quite instrumental about it. And yeah. so I think we, we don't know, like for someone like Elon Musk, we don't know which it is with Tucker Carlson. We don't know which it is. But we know that there are a number of people who should know better, and you know they say nothing. Now, if we turn our mind to the work you've done on QAnon, and I've also been looking at some of your other work, but let's let's look at QAnon for for a moment. Um, the book 
is a substantive piece of work so anybody that wants to dive into it or to get their hands on it uh, firstly called pastel and this is where i mentioned that it's it's very cheap we actually forego any we 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 i mean and again retrospectively very stupid of us but we forgoed any kind of advance to keep the price of the book which is a cloth cover it's a hard cover very cheap and i'm hoping it's cheap in australia as well um but i got mine not long after interviewing sophia uh moskalenko it took, took a little while to get to me but you know, all of that and more but if we take um if we look at the, the content of that book what are the things that you noticed in your research that disturbed you the most I think part of it is that, that so much of QAnon ideology is rehashed um, tropes of anti-Semitism and racism from the period of Reconstruction. And that's the part that is very concerning because it taps into a lot of pre-existing um, chauvinisms. And so, for example, uh, much of what we saw with QAnon uh, rehashes the protocols of the elders of Zion. So there's a lot of anti-Semitism, but it's not just anti-Semitism, it's anti-people of color. And then, of course, they pivoted to be anti-LGBT. And so, so much of what we're hearing about trans and, you know, they've really been quite inspired by this anti-trans movement and banning books and um, outlawing any kind of gender-affirming care. When trans Americans make up less than 0.0005%, it's really not a lot of people. But the QAnon sort of um, propaganda machine has jumped on these wedge issues. And that's what worries me. It worries me because what will happen is that a lot of people will get hurt. Either they'll hurt themselves or they might engage in violence against others. But certainly it's creating a poisonous political atmosphere, not just in the United States, but um, in the UK and Canada. And I think also when ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, has done studies of popularity of QAnon, Australia is in, you know, if not the top five, it certainly makes the top 10 of countries where this, this content is being distributed and people genuinely believe it. And then, as I mentioned earlier, at, at the individual level, if you believe in these conspiracy theories and they stack up like a, like a package of Pringles, right? They, they tend to be associated with other adjacent conspiracies because what QAnon has done very effectively is created almost like a singularity where Conspiracy theories that have long predated October 2017 have been pulled into this universe of QAnon belief. Um, it can affect people not getting vaccinated, not just for COVID-19, but we're seeing a drop, according to UNICEF, of children who are being vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella, or polio, or other, in other words, we're going to see not just the current pandemic that we've just experienced for the last three years, but we're going to see an uptick in child mortality rates 
because you have these parents who believe the conspiracy theories and are becoming um, vaccine hesitant or rex- vaccine refusing. Okay. Now, if we take, if we take a go back a bit to the point at which you mentioned that this phenomenon we know as QAnon is um, a recycler's dream, if I can put it that way, um, and it, it plays upon uh, past bigoted material. Um, how difficult does that make it for people like yourself to classify? Because if you've got uh, what appears to be new and fresh um, groupings or, or uh, movements, if you like, coming out that draw on the old material that would be associated in part with Nazism, for example, how do you label it? How do you differentiate between QAnon and um, sort of aspects of Nazism and, and other things that generally sit on the uh, on the far right? I mean, the part that is really quite curious and and continues to inspire our research is that while QAnon is drawing upon a lot of racist tropes and anti-Semitic tropes, it's still attracting people of color and Jewish people. Like we have something like 40 plus Hebrew language QAnon channels. And so you have in Hebrew disseminating this idea that there's a Jewish cabal of pedophiles who are trafficking children, raping them and drinking their blood in Hebrew. And so I find that, you know, and you're sitting there going, hmm, because ordinarily there weren't a lot of Jewish Nazis. You don't have a lot of, you know, other than when Dave Chappelle is doing a comedy routine, you don't have a lot of black KKK, uh, Ku Klux Klan members. Um, So, and this is really something unique to QAnon that has managed to encapsulate a lot of these very negative stereotypes into an ideology, or as Dr. Moskalenko calls it, a mass movement that is attracting people that they themselves are targeting as the bad guys, like identifying as the bad guys. So, so that really continues to, to, to drive our research into understanding, you know, what's going on. But in terms of in terms of classification, I think it's really important that I make this point with you, Tom. There are a number of people, especially within the think tank world, who have pushed this idea that QAnon is the next ISIS and that QAnon is a terrorist group. And Dr. Moskalenko and I are saying resoundedly no. And I think it's dangerous. It's as if we learned nothing from 20 years post 9-11 to have this... Um, amped up concerns about a group, sort of exaggerating the threat of a group. And so it's really important that, you know, we explain what are some of the differences. And and that's what we've done in some of our uh, work. You know, we approached QAnon originally uh, as two terrorism experts because Christopher Ray had said that it had the the, the potential for terrorism, and then DHS, uh, the, the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security in the U.S., 
Alejandro Mayorkas had said that there was also potential for terrorism. And so there was this whole discussion um, throughout various offices in the U.S. government. And then a number of think tanks were coming out to say that. And so we began to look at it quite seriously, and we didn't see a hierarchical structure. We saw very much an a la carte ideology where people could pick and choose. And so, you know, we, we, we wanted to maybe put the temperature down a little bit and say, maybe we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions that this is a terrorist movement. Because if it was, according to some of the, uh, the surveys that have been done, either by the American Enterprises Institute or by, uh, for example, the Institute for the Study of Religion. If these samples are representative samples, we're looking at 30 million American adults that believe that there is a cabal of child trafficking vampires, you know, that you know, people are raping children and drinking their blood. And so, you know, this we, we call this psychologically, there's this level of arousal not the good, not the good arousal. This is the bad arousal. But there is a psychological level of arousal that people are instantly, you know, freaked out. And we were trying to say, ah, maybe we should calm down. And, you know, on the one hand, we know that the funding landscape has become challenging. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe we shouldn't be repeating the same mistakes that we made for 20 years after 9-11 of exaggerating one th threat and ignoring the real threat. And here it very much, for, for Sophia and I, it's the same thing. We don't want to exaggerate saying the threat of QAnon is terrorism, but we don't want to ignore the mental health threat and the challenges that people are facing as a result of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Well, it, the question that it poses in my mind is who wins out of it being called terrorism? Is it funding for law enforcement? Is it funding yeah. for the think tanks? Is it funding yeah. for for researchers? Yep, yep, yep. And 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 I have to tell you that you know even as a terrorism expert for thirty plus years, when John Mearsheimer from Ohio from Ohio State would say, "You have a better chance of being hit by lightning twice than being killed by a terrorist." You have a better chance of being shot by your own toddler. You have a better chance of drowning in your own bathtub. I used to re reiterate those statistics that John Mearsheimer had come up with in his research. And I would say, trust me, if anyone wants to exaggerate the threat of terrorism, because there's a financial incentive to do so, it's me. And I'm the one saying, calm down. It's not, you know, in other words, especially from jihadist groups, you know, we, we've now have the data that after 9-11, something like 75% of terrorism attacks in the United States were domestic. They were not jihadi groups. There weren't Muslim Salafi jihadi ideology. They were domestic groups. But when you look at the funding and who was publishing and what they were publishing, almost nothing was about the domestic groups. And everything was about jihadism, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on. And yeah. so I think that that's why I get frustrated, because it feels like Groundhog Day, that we learned <laughs> as, a, as, a, as an academic community, we learned nothing from post 9-11. And I'm saying, and, and some of the people who are publishing this notion of QAnon as a terrorist group, 
are people personally who I like. And so that's why I'm not like pointing fingers, but I'm sitting there going, no. And I remember we were briefing um, the secretary of the Navy and a report had just come out from a think tank. It was right before the publication of our book. And the secretary of the Navy said, well, I just read this report that said QAnon is the next ISIS. And I said, uh, no commander, it is not. And, and with, with great respect, because I'm friends with these people, I'm not going to besmirch their, in, you know, their incentive to say financially it makes sense to exaggerate a threat. But I'm just going to let you know right now that it is not a terrorist group. And does it have potential for violence? Well, we've seen violence, but the vast majority of violence is interpersonal violence. It's it's women who have lost custody of their kids who kidnapped their own children. It's someone with mental illness who thinks that his wife has serpent DNA and kills his own children. It's, you know, it's someone who runs his brother through with a sword because he thinks he's a lizard person. But the mental illness stuff is very high, but I, there are people still till this day trying to beat this drum that QAnon is, is a terrorist group. And, and Sophia and I have the data and we're like, no, it's not. And on, on a different note, shame on you because you know it's not. When, when, when you're looking at something like uh, hundreds of arrests associated with January 6th. So I guess what we're up to like 800 arrests. And the vast majority of QAnon, you can find two that might have been inspired by a terrorist or right-wing ideology out of 787, let alone out of the potentially 30 million. That is not statistically relevant. And I'm not I, I'm not a data person, but I know that statistical significance would be more than two. So, so I basically, I look really quite askance at people who are still promoting this idea because they're benefiting from it. But I don't think it's sort of like the Republicans like Kevin McCarthy and, and Mitch McConnell. They don't believe it, but they benefit from making these arguments I think that some of the researchers who are arguing that QAnon is a terrorist group are doing exactly the same thing. Um, I, there was a paper for those listening uh, that was published in Perspectives on Terrorism in April of 2021 by Clark McCauley and Sophia Moskalenko looking at this very issue I'm talking to me about uh, in relation to whether QAnon was a terrorist group and how you deal with the notion of action, extreme uh, viewpoints, opinions, radical opinions and radical actions. So you can check that out online. You've got a new book coming up um, looking at uh, taking you back into jihadi territory, haven't you? Yeah, well, it's <laughs> the production cycle has been quite a... Uh, in French, we'd say a cauchemar. It's been a nightmare. In Arabic, we'd say caboose. In Arabic, it's a caboose. Um, so, so what had happened was I finished the book Christmas 2019. Okay. Days before pandemic and lockdown. And my original publisher, which was Brookings, uh, Brookings Institution Press, sat on the manuscript for about two years and just during the pandemic and then informed me actually we've run out of money 
um, we're releasing you from your contract. And then it took me another two years to find a new press. And, and so what I did was I spent this summer up to, as you can imagine from 2023, from 2019, 20, the four years I needed to update. Some people were dead. Some people were jailed, but I think actually the, the manuscript ended up benefiting greatly from the lag because I was able to go back and, and fix any mistakes. Um, my, my wonderful oh. colleague, Nellie Lude corrected many of the errors about women in Al-Qaeda, but uh, I'm hoping for a 2023 or 2024 publication date, but it's called Veiled Threats. And it's about women who've been in the jihad movement because my last book, Bombshell talked about that, but because it was finished in 2010 and published in 2011, ISIS didn't exist yet. Boko Haram didn't use women yet. And so I thought that there was something really interesting to say about the role of women in jihad in part, and this came out in the bin Laden papers, Osama bin Laden was quite a feminist. This is a surprising element that I, that I um, tease out in the book where uh, his daughters were his pride and joy. And he would often say that he wished that the sons were as smart as his daughters. And I don't think people ordinarily would have assumed that Osama bin Laden was a feminist. But also, I had some really interesting interviews that I'd done with women who had survived from Boko Haram that provided a very different perspective. So for example, in Nigeria, you know, we, we have this view of Boko Haram post um, April 2014, bring back our girls, like is very much influenced by this negative association of the girls who were kidnapped at Chibok. But originally Boko Haram appealed to women in Nigeria, Muslim women, because what they were able to do was say, you know, we're going to be here as advocates for your rights. And lots of women, and this is, again, the hidden part of the story that I wanted to bring out. It's far more complicated that in the years from 2010 until 2014, um, Boko Haram ingratiated itself with Nigerian women. And it was really 2014 was a tide change. But it's it's a very interesting story. I, I, I interviewed one woman whose daughter and son, very young daughter and son, had been kidnapped by Boko Haram. And of course, you know, as you're doing these interviews very carefully, you broach the subject about what happened to the kids. She was able to get the kids back. She rescued them. Although the person who was a former servant in her household who had helped um, ended up being killed by Boko Haram. And she found him on her doorstep in pieces. Literally, they had dismembered him and left him on the doorstep because he had helped her get back her children. But, you know, and I asked about the daughter because, you know, this was um, juxtaposed against what ISIS was doing to very young girls. And she said they didn't touch her. And this was corroborated by a number of people who had gone to Nigeria where, you know, again, while Boko Haram was affiliated with ISIS, they had a very different um, uh standard operating procedure of how they handled young girls and then also what you know what what they did to the women and what roles they gave to women so i think that you know it was it, it's a it's a complicated book to show that the picture is not just black and white
And that is a convenient point to sort of segue into uh, thanking you for, for being very generous with your time. Um, where can people find some of your work if they're wanting to jump online and have a look at some of the papers you've written or worked on? Well, I think the easiest place is, uh, I guess you have Amazon in, in Australia, but I like to support small bookshops. When I was in, I, um, Alexandra Phelan had invited me to Monash in 2019, right before the pandemic. And there were some lovely, lovely bookshops in Melbourne that carried the books. Uh, and I would encourage, you know, and in general, I, I like I like when we support local businesses and, and brick and mortar bookstores. But I understand sometimes the convenience of Amazon is so overwhelming. Um, but also a lot of, you know, we try to we try to um, publish a lot of materials as well in places like the conversation, which is free. Um, so there's no charge to access these shorter articles. And then, of course, I think uh, Dr. Moskalenko um, links all of her articles. And so, so I'm on some of them as well as a co-author. She links them on her LinkedIn and on her um, yep. uh, her, her various, the, the various platforms, you know, um, so that we try, you know, because at the end of the day, and we can have this conversation, Tom, you and I, about um, academics do a lot of free labor. You know, we write these articles, we review for journals, we don't yeah. get paid. And when a journal turns around and tries to charge like $60, $60 or uh, in, in Australia, it might even be more yeah, to access an article. Uh, if anyone ever wants an article of mine and they're being asked uh, to pay because their library doesn't have a subscription, email me and I'll send you the PDF because I would rather people read the materials. We don't make any money from this. And we actually find the whole business model to be problematic. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. I've been talking to Mia Bloom, who's uh, one of the uh, academic gurus, we can put it that way, and a, pro a prolific author in the area of extremism and terrorism, uh, speaking with me from the United States. Thanks for joining me. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Tom, and thank you for accommodating the crazy time difference. Oh, it, that's my pleasure, and thank you for your time.